The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. For a computer, Rem, you're pretty unspecific about things that need to be accurate. To be more accurate, Michael, I would require more complete data, which unfortunately we do not have. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 27th, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And I'm pleased to be joined in studio today by none other than Dr. Christopher Essex from the Department of Applied Mathematics at the University of Western Ontario. Well, welcome to the show, Chris. Oh, thanks. This this is your ninth appearance on the show. So Mm. if people want to hear any previous conversations we had, they're all online. And I received an interesting email from you just on July 18th, and it was right after the City of London passed this mask ordinance that we had to wear masks. And we both live in the City of London, Ontario. And you wrote, as you may know, they are now requiring masks on the basis of a decision from a public health official concerned with future outbreaks. I'm sure you think this is as nuts as I do. You're right about that. (laughs) (laughs) Giving this one person such power is an example of the anti-democratic deference to expertise in our society. The official is acting under some emergency law. Someone should seek a court injunction against this decision on the grounds there's no emergency manifesting except for one of the mind. And of course, that is the case behind Rocco Galati, who is doing exactly that. And that conversation about the whole idea of an anti-democratic deference to expertise, I find that quite fascinating. And we'll get underway right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. And always, consider offering your financial support. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of the 52-page full-color publication, Climate Essentials, written by one of our regular guests, Dave Plum. And I know you've met Dave Plum before, I think, Chris. In fact, one of the first things Dave Plum insisted upon when he first appeared on our show was that he is no expert. Uh. (laughs) Right? Here's a copy of his book. I I think he'd be pleased that you had it. That's sort of the Coles Notes version of his earlier Inconveniently Screwed. Oh, I see. (laughs) Well, thank you. Now, this whole idea of anti-democratic deference to expertise, how do you tie that together, the the anti-democracy to the deference to expertise? It's a fascinating... It's um, kind of a long story, but if you start to think about it step by step, it it, it, uh, makes sense. Um, Basically, expertise is one thing, and... um, People knowing, uh, people knowing how to make decisions is something else. People have to make decisions all the time about in life, and sometimes they uh, prefer, and and I understand this very well, they prefer to defer to experts. So if I go to uh, a doctor's office, I I defer to the expertise of the doctor. Usually, sometimes maybe 
a second opinion is is warranted. But usually you know that you've got something wrong with you, which is the reason why you went to the doctor in the first place. And then after the treatment, you know whether the thing that's wrong with you has uh, has ended or not. So you have some kind of connection to uh, the decision-making process, at least in as far as it has to do with whether you're sick or not. Mm-hmm. Um, or similarly, if you go and you have a, well, you discover in your home you have a... Um, some kind of plumbing problem, oh, the toilet doesn't flush or whatever. Um, you can usually, if you're somebody who does, you know, do it yourself, you might do some of the plumbing on your own, but um, you might not. And uh, you call in a plumber to kind of take care of whatever has gone wrong. And you can tell whether the exercise was, worth, was worthwhile after you have alleviated the problem. And you say, well, I guess I've accomplished this task without actually knowing how to do plumbing. So that's how we defer to experts. But we have this other situation where uh, now the issue is some technical issue in which you are, in essence, the person who has to make an informed decision about. And one of the places where you have to make an informed decision about technical issues are when technical issues become a matter of political significance or social significance and uh, you participate in a democracy and uh, you have to be you have to make decisions in order to decide how to vote about some particular issue then it's a very different situation you actually have to inform yourself about things and i think that's a very difficult task but if you don't do that an easy way out is to say well i'm going to defer to an expert. And so the experts then become a kind of uh, de facto authority. And if you defer to experts as your method of deciding such things, then in essence, the experts become authority and, and authorities and they therefore become, the decision process becomes authoritarian willy-nilly without any intention at all. And so you have a situation now where you have to decide who's the better expert if you have some other authority with a different opinion. And that then you find yourself going down a rabbit hole pretty quickly. Um, so my basic contention in the end is that if you um, think with somebody else's head, uh, you are essentially um, abrogating your role as a responsible adult in a democratic society. So you can't have democracy where you think of knowledge as something that's given by authority. That's interesting because uh, I was going to actually ask you that, whether politicians deferring to other authorities is an abandonment of their responsibility. Yes. And, you know, Robert Vaughn, I was talking to him just before our interview today, and he said he wanted me to ask you if you thought, are politicians experts at anything? <laughs> I know. Well, See, that makes you laugh right away. Well, yeah, it? <laughs> I know. it makes me laugh. I mean, in the sense that there's a lot of um, issues of definition involved. I mean, how do you define expertise and you know, what expert in what? And I, I do think that there's a way of doing politics, um, which I probably am not actually very good at. And I've discovered that from time to time. Politicians speak a kind of language that makes no sense to me. And uh, usually when they, I see them speaking, they're speaking over my head 
to somebody in the audience behind me and they think it's great. But to me, it's just like, uh, <laughs> what's, what's that? So they don't think the way I do. So, <laughs> so, so how, how do you feel that you're so out of sync with them? Is it uh, you're not hearing their message or are they just not relating to you or is what they say totally like out of bounds as far as you're concerned? Well, I've, I've spent a lifetime uh, thinking about the natural world outside of human interactions. Uh, I mean, I have human interactions as a human being, but but most of the time I'm thinking of things that don't involve, you know, what's going on between human beings and I'm not trying to get in their heads and try to figure out what emotions are in play and so forth. So my approach to things often is very analytical. And, um, and that's not the language that politics operates on. It's a, it's a kind of um, saying one thing and meaning something else and resonating with somebody else's feelings on a certain thing. And so it is not really a very helpful environment for, uh, for, for analytical discussions. So I think there's an art to that. And I think that politicians, if they can stand, understand that and, and uh, allow in the analytical to, to work as a kind of hybrid, I think we'd all benefit from that. But it doesn't usually work that way, and uh, and instead, what you get is political thinking going, penetrating into the the analytical realm, and and then basically all kinds of nonsense happens. Well, that certainly seems to be the case with the whole COVID nineteen pandemic situation, and it disturbs me when I see politicians pushing this thing and then rejecting quote unquote expertise from differing people who are in the scientific and medical community and they just reject them out out of hand. Do you you find any similarity between that and what actually happened to you and say Ross McKittrick and and the people who have uh, written books and you know sort of defying the official view? The climate change. Well one thing I really like about COVID is (laughs) you like yeah, I, I really like about it is that uh, I don't have to listen to insane remarks about climate anymore. I mean, <laughs> it's like it's given me a nice holiday, and I, it's been I've been stuck with that for you know, well, thirty years at least, listening to you know, oh, the lights melted in the street because of climate change or something like that. I mean, it's a uh, it's a kind of bubbling insanity that that and. and if you're a rational-minded person, you'll go after every one of these absurd claims, and soon you start to realize that, you know, basically I'm being treated like I'm some kind of dog who's been thrown a stick and I'm fetching it over and over again, you know, some new nonsense thrown, and I go and I fetch it back and say, ha, ha, that makes no sense, ha, ha, and then they throw another stupid stick and I go after <laughs> that and I come back. And so I realize it's, it's a kind of pointless thing. Um, and so I've really tried to not participate in that subject very much because, you know, when people stop listening, it's time to stop talking. I mean, that's and I immediately right in February started to see uh, similar kinds of things regarding COVID. I mean, there's a there's a kind of kernel of legitimate stuff there. Right. And then there's this accretion of of kind of quasi okay kinds of thinking and then it gets progressively more crazy as it builds on and accretes into this giant mass of of goofiness which in the core is still legitimate and so you end up in this terrible uh, pit trying to 
struggle to distinguish between the nonsense parts and the sensible parts. And, uh, and you can get yourself in all kinds of political trouble because, the, you know, rational thinking has now been pushed into the corner because, you know, you don't know what's really going on and you've got propaganda and crazy ideas and, and uh, angry people all over the place. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's very frustrating. Hi, everybody. This is Gatsad. It is important to understand the distinction between physicians and scientists slash academics. The former obviously perform a profoundly important role in society, but this does not mean that they know how to think scientifically. Taking an anatomy course during medical school does not make you a scientist. Applying the scientific method in investigating phenomena makes you a scientist. One of the reasons that many of the prescriptions coming from leading physicians during the COVID pandemic are utter BS stems from the fact that they are not thinkers. A biostatistician trained in epidemiological models is more often than not much more of an expert when it comes to understanding the spread of the virus than a physician who knows next to nothing about the mathematical modeling of pandemics. It's incredible how imbecilic most people are in terms of their use of fast and frugal cues in ascribing authority to someone. With all due respect to Dr. Anthony Fauci and the Surgeon General, many PhD students are much more sophisticated thinkers than them. Physicians practice a noble profession, but this hardly means that we should be subcontracting our collective thinking to them, especially when we are entering year 97 of the lockdown. And no, this does not mean that I am a science denier. De Gutier. Now that's one fancy stage name. But you ain't fooling no one, Professor Baldwin. <laughs> that's who you are, ain't it? A dirty, no good scientist will discuss theoretical physics with anyone so long as the funding's right. I'm out of the science game now, see? I ain't such a peachy dish in months. How dense do you think I am? You really want to know? Just divide your mass by your volume. (laughs) We have been inundated with data and models and facts and conclusions about all kinds of studies relating to COVID, let alone to your field of expertise, which was climate change. And you were just mentioning in the break there that there's a difference between facts and conclusions. It seems a little bit obvious, but I'm sure you're getting at something a little deeper than... Like, I mean, a fact can be, this is a table. What conclusion do I draw from that? Or Well, no, the, the, the idea that I had in mind uh, is that sometimes people, well, let's just uh, clarify back up a little bit and say that one of the big uh, talking points in a lot of political arguments are, you know, let's attend to the facts. These are the facts. Right. And you, often facts involve data. And uh, and so, in many respects, data, especially in the social sciences, 
is regarded as the the most rigorous thing there is. They're the facts, right? Um, and uh, in in my field where I do theoretical physics and and other things like that, um, empiricism and data is actually oddly rather than think, thought of being thought of as rigorous, is being thought is actually thought in the other way as being the lowest of the low. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the problem with the, with data and facts is that all numbers if you just have a bag of numbers it doesn't mean anything if you have numbers you have to have some sort of interpretation that gets uh, appended to the numbers so a set of numbers is equipped with interpretations and and so on so you'll hear certain kinds of facts which turn out to actually be uh, conclusions that uh, uh, has have been derived from certain assumptions made about the data. So in a kind of curious way, a lot of the times data uh, that is considered to be objective and independent is in many occasions a kind of an interpretive model. I mean, you actually have modeled things without even knowing you have done that. A given example which came to mind recently, someone told me that Many people died in Montreal from COVID-19, and so I had to treat that as a fact. But it's also more of a conclusion. While I would be willing to acknowledge, because there's something very sharp-edged about people dying, that people died. Right. The, the conclusion part is that they died from COVID, and that is partly a matter of definition and interpretation. But the whole thing is presented as a completely unquestionable collection or conclusion as a fact. So the conclusion becomes a fact. So it's a conclusion uh, based on an interpretation that they treat as a fact. So that's one of the sort of classic problems when in dealing with, well, anything analytical, you end up having uh, conclusions being mis misunderstood as facts. Well, it's clear that, that the anticipated death toll from COVID-19 was grossly overestimated. In fact, even what they are reporting does not appear to be factual at all. And as I'm learning now, they haven't even yet isolated the SARS-CoV-2 virus to be able to say they can even measure it. So it reminds me, you sent me a quick memo as well during the course of this. You said, models bad, but data are bad too, yeah. right? And it reminded me of this quote that you have in your book, Taken by Storm, that you co-authored with Ross McKittrick. And I just wondered if this was part of the problem, particularly when the original projections came out. And you wrote, computers make mistakes, and they make them very rapidly. You can make errors bigger and faster on a computer than in just about any other way. I had to laugh when I heard that. It's <laughs> so, true. Is, is that true? <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. that, that's where I remember we talked in the past about the limits of computation and issues of that nature. I think a lot of people aren't even aware of that. That you No, they're not. And, and uh, there's a kind of uh, um, cachet that uh, doing things on computers has uh, that people... They don't appreciate the limitations of computers in general. There are many things that can be cannot work. Yeah, we could spend a whole session on that that one thing. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to models, there's another problem: is that because of this kind of cachet, that oh, some expert has told me there's a model, and the model says this. 
that's treated as if it was a completely rock-solid result. But no models ever can be that way. It's, it's just the nature of these things. Uh, and the only place where I think there's a legitimate chance uh, of that kind of thing playing out is probably in fundamental physics where the model, the standard model of physics is really, really good, you know, by comparison to anything else. But most of the other things are like other kinds of modeling that you have in these sorts of sort of sorts of situations are kind of cartoons. And, you know, you need to if you're if you're going to be presented with one of those, you have to know how to think about it. And uh, one of the things you do with any one of those models is you want to find out, well, hopefully what's in it. And maybe even if you don't know what's in it, you can at least have control over what's the input and what's the output. And you can uh, play with it a little bit and see how it behaves under different circumstances to the input parameters, tune them a little bit and see what happens. And what you probably would find with any of these models that you talked about in connection with COVID is they're probably very sensitive to certain kinds of numbers. Uh, and that immediately says, well, yeah, okay, I'm going to take that with a grain of salt. I think that's, uh, but I don't think that that's the way in which these things are treated. Uh, the, um, certainly you'll get exponential growth, but uh, it's already more or less known uh, that any kind of epidemic has a well-defined kind of sigmoidal structure in terms of the populations of infected people. So the, the uh, there's a kind of an initial exponential period and then it starts to flatten out afterwards and that, that's what makes the so-called sigmoidal shape. And so if if the model doesn't do the turnover at the right place, then it stays exponential for longer, you get bigger numbers. So uh, that's not really surprising. And I think if people had a little bit of background knowledge on this stuff, they would say they would respect the model to a certain extent, but they would be very skeptical about these numbers that were proposed uh, in the beginning. Um, Is part of the problem with models that they are considered really a projection of the future, and it's almost impossible to predict the future? Well, it really depends on on what kind of system you're looking at and what the circumstances are. I mean, if you if you want to predict the positions of the planets. Uh, you can do a very accurate job. I mean, uh, you can... Uh, so there are certain kinds of areas of science where we can predict mm-hmm. things. So uh, various kinds of Hamiltonian systems and so on, you know, harmonic oscillators and that well, kind of thing. That's because in physics we have very accurate measurements already. We've already made observations for a long period of time before we construct these models. Isn't that part of the problem? I mean, I I see a lot of these models with regard to disease projections to be, I guess, in large part, a a matter of garbage in, garbage out. If if you're not putting the right, right data into your model, or if you're making an assumption that everything is static, that nothing will change, that people won't take action. You know, you see that in economic models a lot, too, when they project that, you know, this this cost is going to go skyrocket, which it would if nobody did anything and no one changed anything or took any other action. You can construct uh, models that don't have proper limiting principles. So any kind of... So you know there has to be a limiting principle on, on... on an epidemic. I mean, it's just a, it's 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 got to be part of the fundamental nature of the thing. The question is, what is it, and how well was it built into the the model? 
but again, if you treat the treat these things with a grain of salt, you might get some intuition about what might be expected, but you also can figure out to some extent what was put in and what wasn't. I mean, it, you know, there's certain, you know, biomathematics is a very interesting subject and can be very deep in many, in many, many respects. And there's, there's a whole area of applied mathematics that specializes in that stuff. And the, I have some familiarity with the mathematics that are, that's involved. But you know that, um, there has to be a limiting principle even on an epidemic. Um, you can think, if you like, of the population as just a bunch of little dots. Every person is like a little dot, and uh, and they, they would be nodes in a network. And then every person could be connected by a line to every other person. Those are the, known as edges in a graph. And that would define a network. And so if you imagine all the dots are blue to begin with, say, and you um, say they're not infected, and suddenly you introduce an infection where you flip some of the nodes into uh, red, saying to be inf infected. Thinking of it from the point of view of the virus, the virus has a terrible challenge. It's got, if it wants to infect the whole population, it's got to get through this network. So each person against every every other person. So what you see is that first of all the virus has got a time limit if you if it infects someone it's got you know 10 to 14 days a decision is made either you live or you die and the people who live in principle the person is not going to be able to be infected any further and so in some sense that node is now removed from the network and suddenly all the connecting lines that came through that person is now removed there's a two-week 10 to 14 day time scale for that to happen. And so if you start to take out more and more people as they get it and then they get over it or they die, then the network starts having holes in it. And if you get enough holes, the network eventually separates into little islands and they're not connected to each other and so forth. And so the whole epidemic in that sense starts to burn itself out. And so there's this internal clock of two weeks going on for yeah. each member of the network. So you, you know that there's an, an inherent limitation. At some point, nobody else can be infected, and it's over. Unless, of course, there's, you know, of course, the immunity is more complicated in some ways, and there's this recent move to say, well, you know, you're immune for three months, and then after that, you know, yeah. you get piled back into the network. And I don't think there's much evidence for that from what I've been able to see or glean reading between the lines of all the things that have been said. So you know that ultimately these epidemics and all the ones in the past burn out. Mm -hmm. And it's for this reason, they're basically they've just used up enough of the network that they can't really infect anybody else very well. And so you, you just don't have any more cases of it. So there may still be some people who weren't infected, but the, there's just no way to get to them. Right. The, the well, I wish, I wish our politicians understood that principle. Well, it's, it's a kind of common sense thing. Yeah. I mean, you know very well that two weeks is all the virus has got. So it's kind of a desperate situation for COVID, you know. They, I've got to get to the next, the next host, right? So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Bill, it's not directly an indicator that Anthony Fauci is out on the White House task force, but the president just announced this week that Dr. Scott Atlas is a former chief of neuroradiology at Stanford University Medical Center and a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution, has been added to the White House task force. Uh, Atlas is best known to, you know, the immunology public um, for writing a piece in The Hill called The Data is In, Stop the Panic, and End the Isolation. Bill, uh, obviously, this sounds like it would be good news for you. Uh, is it good news for Fauci and for the country? Well, it's not good news for Fauci, but it's great news for the country. And I just wish this had happened three months ago. The primary problem with Fauci is the person who has basically been given the handling of the pandemic has at no point since, the, since March 18th when they locked down California, has at no point given to us, governors, mayors, the president, anybody, a clear and quantitative definition of what will happen in order for this crisis to end. And I don't expect it to end in one step. Um, Bill, this is, I want to read you this final uh, little cluster of words here from Scott Atlas, because I think you'll, you'll again be shocked that somebody who's going to be advising the president would say something like this. Um, this is his guidance. Strictly protect the known vulnerable, self-isolate the mildly sick, and open most workplaces and small businesses with some prudent large group precautions. This would allow the essential socializing to generate immunity among those with minimal risk of serious consequence, while saving lives, preventing overcrowding of hospitals, and limiting the enormous harms compounded by continued total isolation. Let's stop under-emphasizing empirical evidence while instead doubling down on hypothetical models. Facts matter. Final thoughts, Bill. <laughs> Slain. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful to the... Oh, he's back. He, he arose. I'm dizzy. doesn't correlate with anything in my database. Any theories, Kreitz? Not at this juncture, sir. Why do you always ask him if he's got any theories? I'm acting stand-in, commanding senior premier officer. Why do you never ask me? Maybe I've got a theory. Maybe I've got a really great theory. But you're always too busy asking him to find out how great my theory really is. Okay. Any theories, Rimmer? No. <laughs> it's the principle. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And I'm in studio with Professor Christopher Essex from the Department of Applied Mathematics at the University of Western Ontario. And Chris, everything you just said before the break regarding models and expectations presumes something else, too. It presumes that there's nothing else at play. And what I'm dealing with here as we go into the COVID situation is that a lot of what we're dealing with is out-and-out -out fraud that someone else has a different agenda and that they are skewing these stats and purposely misrepresenting them and then building models on those misrepresentations. Aren't we dealing with a complete different phenomenon here than 
just you know a scientific one because that's what I'm seeing right across the board. It it just it amazes me how badly they are misrepresenting the stats and this. I'm looking at a newspaper here, for example. This is how they terrify people every day. Um, COVID-19 and healthcare reads the front page of the August 18th London Free Press, and they give us these stats, you know, 29 healthcare workers, 31% of cases. Just throwing figures at us. Middlesex London, 159 healthcare workers, 22% of cases, and on and on. All these useless stats. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, I, I think about this book written by a history professor in Florida, and uh, the title of the book was Why the News Makes Us Dumb. <laughs> that's a good one. And, and, you know, that's a real problem because uh, very, uh, in many technical areas that I see in, in popular information venues, the news media does a very, very bad job, and... Um, you might say, well, there is this possibility that some people are actually twisting the numbers in order to achieve a certain result. But before you go around damning people, um, you have to realize what science is versus what politics and human affairs is. Science is a kind of a persistent skepticism. And uh, I really like uh, Richard Feynman's definition uh, science is a belief in the ignorance of experts. Yeah. And I, I think that's an important way of thinking. I mean, of course, you also shouldn't believe your own propaganda. If you want to think scientifically, you have to not feel like you're some kind of prophet. You know, everybody says everybody looks to validate their own opinion. I have never been like that. I'm always out trying to invalidate my opinion because to me that's the test, that your opinion has some weight if you can't dispute it, if it keeps showing up to be right. And that's what I see happening here. And, uh, and I'm not a big fan of a lot of politicians, as you already know, but they seem to be going way out of their way to obviously well, there, deal with there, it. There are other issues, and that's what I was going to bring up. So that's okay. the scientific way of thinking. But there's another thing that is very human, uh, and I've been confounded by this on many occasions, and that is the role of style and fashion. Human beings uh, want to belong, and they don't want to seem like they're outliers particularly. And unfortunately, uh, thinking about things scientifically requires you to challenge the prevailing views. And, you know, immediately you run into, you know, Orwell's f famous quote about that kind of thing. You know, if you voice the views that are not the ones that are held by all sensible and good people, uh, you will rarely get a fair hearing, if I paraphrase that a little bit. And that, I think that's that's exactly right, and it's one of the reasons why science has often gone slower than it needs to, because there's a kind of a consensus at each stage, and the, the correct answer is actually inconsistent with the consensus view. And so there's been these lonely figures bucking up against these collective uh, positions on, on things. And so you have this fashion aspect to it, which is something that is very potent and important for political thinking. And uh, there's no interest in this sort of analytical, you know, bucking the trend kind of way of 
thinking. And so you, you end up with these powerful, uh, stylish trends going in a certain way in which they run over anything else because you have to be part of this school of fish or this herd of animals going in a certain direction. And uh, so it's very easy to get stuck in confirmation bias in order so you can stay part of the herd or even to get to the point where you say, well, I know I'm doing the right thing uh, because it's so true that maybe I should, uh, you know, become corrupted and, and twist the numbers around or whatever because I'm doing a noble, so it's noble cause corruption is one of the, the, the things that are involved. So the possibilities for people to defraud themselves and fool themselves is, is quite enormous and it's, it's, it's a human condition in many respects. And, uh, and so one of the things that I always hope for is the common sense of people. They see, well, yeah, this, this, this actually doesn't make any sense and hold this, these fashions to task. But uh, we're very much driven by style and fashion, and uh, that means also suppression of uh, ideas that uh, seem to be inconsistent with the divine truth. You know? Well, I, I notice you're always using that term, the divine truth. You know, it's like uh, we've heard it in climate change. We're hearing it here. The science is settled. Okay, yeah. like you can't argue with it. And this is what disturbs me greatly, especially when all these doctors are coming forward saying, sorry, the science is not settled. In fact, you've got it all backwards. And you made an interesting comment in your essay, Caveman Climate and Computers, where you wrote, the moral turpitude of choice is fraud. Allegations are made that false opinions are bought and paid for from experts by forces that aim to deceive. If identified, the next step is just to ignore the offending experts. I wish I could do that here. <laughs> I can't really ignore the experts when they are being touted as the authorities, as you said, forcing us to wear masks, forcing us to shut down our economy, which is beyond belief to me. This, I just can't believe we're even going through this right now, this whole exercise that's unnecessary. What do you see as a response to that? I mean, people might have common sense, but where do they exercise it? We're seeing more of it in the protests, but even there, the establishment is not allowing us to see that. They're banning even news about the protests, such as the ones in Berlin or in Ottawa. People don't hear about this in the papers. So naturally, based on the information they're getting, are they being stupid or are they just being rational based on all that they know? You know what I'm asking? Well, I, I think there's there's a, a distribution. <laughs> there are people who are being deluded. There are people who are kind of see through it, and they're just kind of grudgingly going along with it because they want to be lawful. That's more or less my approach is that, yeah, I wear a mask. I think it's really silly, but uh, there are lots of people who believe in it, but if I'm trying to be lawful. I don't think that helps anybody. I think there was a term called pluralistic ignorance that sociologists uh, used to, well, they might still use it, where they know whether individuals think they're the only ones with a certain view, but actually there's a there's a, a large number of people in the wider society who feel the same way, but they don't have any mm -hmm. way to know that. And so many of us just sort of think, well, it's just us and people are just going to get mad at you if you well, say something the, about you know, that. That's or, what concerns me about this whole yeah. thing. First of all, to be technically correct, it's not exactly unlawful not to wear a mask. You just have to say you're exempt or you can't. Or you, yeah, they, they've you allowed have have every it. kind of reason. No, you don't have to have any identification. You don't have any written note for you. No, you don't need that, nor, nor is anyone allowed to ask you. 
Oh, I, you're sick. My okay. daughter Danielle goes grocery shopping all the time, and she doesn't wear a mask. Now right. she can't. I mean, she was in ICU for three months mm. just a year or two ago, you know, and she's been through the whole being under uh, intubated, intubated, and, and all that. And, and I'm telling you, it's a horrible experience. You don't ever want to put oh, yeah. anybody through that. No. And she definitely can't wear a mask. And I'm pretty much in the same situation too. Mm. So this is this causes a tremendous amount of trauma, and I think that really is what a lar- large part of the purpose of it all is, is to um, bring in a climate change, if you will, that is political. I, I have no doubt that there are people who see this as a clever lever to get power, uh, but I think they're mostly in a minority. People are just operating on what they know, and, you know, the public health people say, I should do this. This is the best I can understand it, and 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 that's it. And and so they're they're not really part of a cabal or anything. It's just a way of the structure of how we put our society together that allows for this kind of phenomenon to to happen. That's one of the reasons why climate change staggered on long past the period where it should be an undead kind of thing, and it just kind of <laughs> keeps you know, trudging on like Frankenstein's monster, and, well, they had to be just pushed off the pages by COVID. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah, they're still talking about it. It hasn't stopped any of the well, legislation. Yeah, it's kind of sad for the people who, are, who have been pushing it uh, because they're really, you know, hungering for some press attention. And I think that they realize that there's the, that the the game of the day is not climate change anymore and that's, uh, so that's what we have you know i'm hoping that we'll get over this uh, soon but you know well they're talking like it's going to go on for years well there's i mean from the the reasoning that they are applying there's absolutely no reason for them ever to stop because there's no there's all the arguments that have been made for covid can be made equally for any kind of uh, uh, viral infection of right. that class, and uh, and and so there's absolutely no limiting principle. And I'd say that that's the worst crime of all of this is there's no limiting principle. There's no date in which we're going to stop this. There's no uh, further insight by which criteria that we're going to use that to stop it. Uh, it's they need a limiting principle for this kind of thing. And they don't have it, and that's that's the thing that I think is just such a telltale that something is completely irrational here. If, if for instance, in the beginning of well, what was it uh, March or so, when people said, "Well, we're going to lock down," I could say, "Well, I don't think locking down is a good idea," but I could certainly tolerate it if they were going to lock it down for. We'll do it for three weeks, and after three weeks. We'll see if it helped at all, and then we'll evaluate, and then we'll stop at a certain point. It's done. And uh, that would be something I would tolerate. I mean, but I think it's bad enough that you quarantine healthy people. It's really bad that you quarantine them forever. I mean, and that's that's, and I think that's one of the news sites was called referring to this as lockdown forever. No kidding. Yeah. What is this place? It appears to be some sort of illicit science club, a place where bootleg professors and astrophysicists get together to create illegal tech and discuss outlawed scientific theories. You boys want company? We're looking for a Harmony de Gutierre. Hey, Hawk, huh? there's a bunny here, wants to get acquainted. So, uh, you want to grab a drink first, or you want to go somewhere quiet and discuss relativity? <laughs> For an extra 10 bucks, I'll do both, general and special. 
No, that's that's not why I'm here. You into electrons? Is that what pings your microwave? You want to watch me do the double slit test and experience the probabilistic nature of quantum mechanics? What? No. Well, every guy likes particles that turn into waves, right? Or maybe you're more in the mood for some Copenhagen interpretation. You know what I'm talking about, where subatomic events are only perceptible as indeterministic, physically discontinuous transitions between discrete, stationary states. Look, we're not here to do science with you, okay? I'll wear a tweed suit and sensible shoes if that revs up your engine. We're here for something else. Hey, I don't do the Big Bang. That's Beryl. And if you're looking for a unified field theory, I ain't your gal. Look, we've been sent here to deliver some gizmo. We've got told you might help. This is the capacitor. The cops get the mitts on this. We're deader than Galileo's theory of tides. So who are you? Just some guys from the future looking to help. So what does that thing do? It fits into this. But how, I don't know. It's on my area. You were just keeping it safe? Exactly. No one goes up there. <laughs> so what does this thing do? It infiltrates the electron wavelet and redirects it. Creating an EMP to destroy the exponoids. You got it. Any clue how they go together? We're all theoretical. And all the scientists still active have been driven underground. No one's exactly rah-rah about getting sent to old steamy. So there's no scientists around who can put this thing together? Just the bums and palookas who fell apart when they couldn't practice science. Where are they? They spend all day drinking themselves goofy. Einstein, Hubble, and Edison. But you only get phonus balonus out of those screwballs. They're spifflicated, morning, noon, and night. Did you say Einstein, as in Albert Einstein? Sure. He's half goofy now, screaming at people who aren't there, walking around the park pushing a pram full of string. <laughs> He's got some theory about it, but no one will listen. Pram theory? You're talking about inherent limitations on all of these laws and prohibitions and everything they're doing. It seems to me that what we really need is a limitation on the power of government, really. You know, since this started, I have not been able to think of a single reason that would justify a shutdown of the nature that we're in right now. Well, there was this hypothetical argument, and it was really a hypothetical, which was the, uh, so the argument of flattening the curve. But you notice that that's gone. Nobody talks about that anymore. But that was a kind of hand-waving argument that might make sense. In other words, the hospitals might be overwhelmed and uh, uh, if we can kind of slow it down, the spread, there's a kind of a logic to it. The question is whether that's actually realized and I don't think it was realized. That's partly because they didn't understand what was going on initially and they had... Uh, well, initially they were talking as if this particular virus was extremely different from every other kind of virus we've ever encountered. I mean, there was talk about it coming out of a lab in Wuhan and the whole situation that it, ha that it contains properties. Why, it's like Ebola or something yeah, like that. Or yeah. properties that are not... We're all going to die. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But they assign... People love their apocalypse. You know? <laughs> it's a... They do, don't they? They do. Well, no, I mean, it's, uh, apocalypse is an ancient part, and I think it's of, of human nature, and, and I think people worry about that, and 
it's just really great stuff for uh, for selling newspapers or whatever <laughs> selling them whatever <laughs> yeah it's so it's it's a great sales feature for for news sites uh you know the end of the world is nigh you know i mean it's uh, so yeah they're very apocalyptic but one of the very first things that uh, I, I was concerned about and uh, was not really being discussed in the news media was the issue of asymptomatic cases. Mm-hmm. And I actually was presented with a physician on air saying there is no such thing as an asymptomatic case. No such thing. Yeah, there's, this is early on. Yeah. So yeah, they're all symptomatic as far as this person was concerned. And you know, in all the viral cases that I've heard of in the past, um, there were always some asymptomatic cases, and the question was, how, what was the number? And people didn't have a decent number. And it turned out to be very large, the number of asymptomatic cases. Um, and uh, there's great energy behind the idea that this is different than a normal flu. And basically, from what I've been able to hear from the very, my expert people that I know is that there are differences in the molecular structure of the thing but then even among influenza there are differences from sure. different strains and uh, there's but there's a big argument to make it seem this is not flu and this is flu and you know that kind of definition is um, uh, is probably technically correct uh, because that's how they've chosen to make the definitions, and often I, I point out that definitions are a very important part of how people reason. You know, you, that's what this show is about. We deal with epistemology all the time. So the, the de- you have to work, and w- if you want to do mathematics, you have to know your definitions in order to find out some kind of coherent result. So if you don't have a good definition for for uh, what constitutes a flu that you're using because the flu is is always been a vague uh, vernacular term and it's now been elevated to a technical term which doesn't actually agree to some extent with the vernacular so it really is like a flu in a lot of ways and it's a corona shape and it's so in that respect it's it's a little bit uh, rich to completely make an effort to separate it and make it seem so incredibly different it could have been, but it hasn't worn out that way. And so there's, you're going to see a lot of parallels with regular flu. And not only that, I mean, another parallel with regular flu is apparently hydroxychloroquine and other similar drugs are very effective at stopping and limiting the infection if you use it early enough. And I've heard countless, countless people attest to that. I know them personally. I know people in the healthcare system, and there are just hundreds of studies online that are all being kept from us. Yeah, so, so it, it's, and, and, and this is where the politics comes in. We're not really, makes it impossible for us to get through this because they, they, they make people who push hydroxychloroquine sound like a bunch of nutcases. Which they aren't. Which they aren't in all likelihood. But then there are arguments made that it's much more dangerous than it seems and le- much less effective than people have been saying. And uh, so you, you have this problem where you have different experts saying different things. And what you really need in the end is, well, <laughs> data. You need measurements and, and so forth. To True. And that data is coming out now and it's starting yeah. to show 
that the side of, on hydroxychloroquine is the side that's on the right side of this. Yeah, well, you know, but what shouldn't happen is that, the, that it shouldn't be suppressed as some kind of evil propaganda. It should be just people should be allowed to see right. it. Right. You, you would think that if, if our politicians were really interested in, in solving this problem, that they would welcome an open debate welcome every idea that's out there that could possibly recommend some kind of treatment or solution to what is ultimately the stated problem, which I don't think is what it is. I think it's a whole other agenda. But let's assume it is getting rid of this virus. Wouldn't you want a, a lively debate and, and let doctors and people and the public, you know, think for themselves? At well, least they can hear two sides of the story instead of just one. I, that's... The problem with solving problems is that many people are not really in the business of problem solving and they're interested in other things and uh, that gets complications, uh, all, that has complications all over the place and uh, we're just in a kind of a pickle at the moment and the question is whether we'll right ourselves or not. I don't, I don't know at this point. Uh, I, I really don't. I'll tell you, it, it kind of scares me. You made an interesting comment a little earlier on you said when people don't listen, you just stop talking to them if they're not listening. And it seems to me that might be an approach in one sense, but it's not going to solve the problem, I think. And it's not just the people who don't listen. There's the people who like to listen but can't hear the message. And we've got to get through to them, too. And I'm thinking of you in terms of what you went through with your whole experience on the whole climate change issue, I mean. Well, it's not even it's not even my main area of research. No, I realize, I mean, and and I, I you know, but it's something that um, is so much tied up with things that have nothing to do with science and rational thinking that that it it wears on you after enough years. Yeah. I, I was involved in it for decades, and you know, it's sort of been in the company so, of so madness for too long. Having gone through what you went through. What might you recommend to some of the doctors that are now facing uh, censure and discipline and, you know, being put down and all that? Should they just stop trying to tell us anything or should they keep at it? Because this is worse than climate change. This is actually affecting direct lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, and it's that power that makes it so that I don't have to contend with that climate right. change because of the, of the effectiveness of this. Because I think that it does have people frightened. I have no fear of this at all. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't, you know. You're talking about COVID-19. Oh, no. no, I'm in the same I'm boat. I'm le least bit frightened by it, but there are a lot of people who are, and I think it's important that you understand that. And uh, Well, they're the, they are the people I'm concerned about. They're the people who need to hear another side of the story and to understand that you don't have to be frightened of this. I've encountered this in other situations uh, in connection with nuclear energy and a bunch of other things over the years. And uh, once people go down that road, it's very hard to dislodge them from the house of fear. I mean, they're, they're in there and you can say what you want. They, the obvious things won't be uh, thought about. Like, for instance, with masks, I think there was a very interesting video in which a doctor took a, a, a one of those vape, vape yeah. um, cigarettes, e-cigarettes, and, and vaped. And he put these masks on, and, and he then blew out, I and mean, what you'd be blowing out is a bunch of aerosols or droplets, right. and they're like, you know, spherical droplets. So there'd be water around some, some nucleus of... 
I just watched that video this morning for oh, the first did. for the first time. Uh, I, see, yes, I yes. couldn't believe it. The guy had a cloud of smoke around his head each time. Well, it's not actually smoke. It's, oh, I know uh, it was. It's, it was. Uh, it's, it's mostly water vapor. vapor uh, yeah. 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 In aerosol physics, there's a difference between smoke yeah. and vapor clouds yeah. like that, right? And so, what the, those the reason why you can see those droplets is because they're starting to get to the wavelength of light and size. So they're like about half a micron or. Or, or more, and so that you can see them. And now you're already talking about sizes that are at least as big as what you would get from any droplets that would produce the virus. So you can see them when you, you, he breathes and you can see it coming right through the cloth. And yeah, this is just a very practical demonstration. So things like that illustrate why these things are not as effective as people think they mm-hmm. are. You know, we're talking about tens of hundreds of nanometers for the uh, virus. You know very well that they've got to somehow hitchhike on droplets and so forth. And this stuff just comes right out. And so there's a reason why when people have tried masks before, they don't um, have, well, for instance, I think they've done various experiments where they have all the hospital staff wear masks and see if it reduces the number of colds and so forth. And it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, and nobody's really surprised about that. So the common sense approach to this thing where people can see with their own eyes what's going on is a very effective medium for for explaining to people about things. Um, Well, maybe that's the route we have to take. I've got my eye on the clock here, and it appears the time has arrived for me to ask you if you've got any last observations or comments that you'd like to make before we wrap up. Uh, one of the things uh, people, when I was interviewed on climate many years ago uh, um, by a, a team that visited me, um, they uh, they had a similar kind of question. And my answer to people when they're trying to de- contend with all of these potentially scary technical things is think with your own head and try to stop being afraid. And I think that's important because even people who are not experts know things that experts don't. And uh, it's, uh, it's worthwhile for you to put a little bit of effort in understanding things. And if you don't know it today or you don't know it six months from now, that's fine. But if the issue keeps on, there was no limiting principle, it keeps on and on, you have time to actually accumulate enough knowledge that you can actually say something and reasonably intelligent about the, the subject. And if you're not really... If they let you. <laughs> well, and I think that in the end, hopefully our democratic uh, institutions will kick in and the leaders will see that it's not actually in their benefit to continue with this approach and, and it'll it'll die away, I hope. Uh, but it, it might be that we'll be doing wearing these stupid masks for for years because um, there's no limiting principle as i said well not me that's for sure well thanks for joining us chris i think that uh what we've learned today will no doubt be integrated into our future discussions <laughs> <laughs> of this nature and i like your idea that we should be thinking more common sensely and that's what we hope we'll be doing again and that's why everyone is invited to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 
It's probably just a broken pipeline that runs under the can. Hogan, do you want me to go out there and start digging myself? Okay, you know most of it anyway. Tell me, Hogan, is this really oil? Not just oil, Commandant. Black gold. Starlight 13 is located right over a sea of high-grade, pure, crude money. <laughs> when did you discover this? Well, remember about uh, six months ago, there was an American lieutenant, an engineer, who was captured and brought here? He found it? Yeah. Just before he was transferred to Starlight 9. Besides being an engineer, he was also a geologist. Confirmed by an expert? 